Good morning, friends. Wherever you are, uh, however you may be accessing this service, I hope you're all doing well. Don't worry, I'm not texting and talking at the same time. Uh, but I just want to say thank you uh, for tuning in. I also just want to say that I miss you guys. I was texting a friend that goes to Calvary here, and uh, I said to him, I miss people. I miss seeing my people on Sunday morning and throughout the week. I hope that you are all doing well. So thank you for tuning in. I hope to see you all very, very soon. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather virtually. Lord, we, we know that you are bigger than this. You are bigger than the situation in the world right now. You are bigger than the distances that we now face. Lord, I just pray that through technology and through the work of your spirit and the work of your word, uh, that you would continue to shape and mold us wherever we are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, I must say today that we are starting a new series in the Gospel of John, and I am, we would say, stoked or excited. I am particularly excited today because I unveil to you all of my uh, Bible nerdness, so to speak, and uh, I hope that you did not tune in today to be entertained, uh, just because that's definitely not my goal. Uh, Today, really, my goal is to introduce to us the Gospel of John. But at the same time we are introducing the Gospel of John, we are also simultaneously, I'm hoping to equip you or to put a tool in your toolbox on how to actually study the Bible, the process of interpreting the Scripture. And what we will see today is we will see, we talk about really 11 steps, and the first four steps, very rarely do preachers talk about, but really the first four steps to studying the Bible are the foundation for steps 5 through 11. So, quite simply put, we will spend 45 minutes together just introducing the Gospel of John and simultaneously uh, discussing how to study the Bible or the process of a fancy word called hermeneutics. Okay, before we get started, before we really dive in, I actually have three favors to ask of you. Favor number one is to go on our website. If you do not know what it is, I will try to say it slowly, www.cbchsv.org. If you go on our homepage, you will find the sermon notes. I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to go on our website and download those notes to help you keep track, because today's sermon is going to be information overload, and the sermon notes will help you keep track of what's going on in the world and what's going on in Byron's head as it just spills on you an overwhelming flood of just greatness. Wonderful stuff. Okay, so favor number two is uh, to purchase for your theological library two resources. The first book I will just share with you is this book right here. It's called Yeshua, the Life of a Messiah from the Messianic Jewish Perspective. It's actually four volumes. It's by Arnold Frickenbaum. It was recommended, recommended to me by Harvey Ching, who goes to church here. He's an elder. What I like about this book is just it gives us a different perspective on the Gospels that we may never have seen before. So buy this. It's not cheap, but it's nice. It's four volumes. And then the other book I'm going to recommend you purchase is not one I have with me, but it's called this, and I'll say it twice. It's an introduction to the New Testament, a three-volume collection by D. Edmund Hebert. 
An Introduction to the New Testament Three-Volume Collection by D. Edmund Hebert. Now, if you were to go on Amazon and type in Introduction to the New Testament, you're going to see like a thousand books. Okay, so make sure you get the author is D. Edmund Hebert. What I like about this book, it is one of my uh, most consistent books I open. The best part about that book is it gives a very thorough uh, discussion of each New Testament's background. So it discusses date, author, location of writing, occasion for writing, so forth. It is a wonderful book to have on your uh, library shelf or in your Kindle. Okay. Um, anyways. And then my last favor is more of a challenge. If you really want to wring out every drop of truth from the Gospel of John, it really cannot be done through a 45-minute sermon every week. In order to really wring out the truth from John, I would encourage you to take the initiative to read through the Gospel of John every week. Because if you will do that, it will just unfold the magnificence of this Gospel that a lot of times we overlook. But as we step into the Gospel of John and we introduce it, uh, the, the Gospel of John presents to us a problem. It presents to us an issue. The issue really is, is that many of us have been inoculated to its beauty and to its magnificence. As I probably mentioned that we are introducing the Gospel of John, probably some of you said, okay, this again, okay, because we've heard it so many times. You know, the Gospel of John is like an old TV rerun, okay, you know what I'm talking about, you know, you've seen the same episode five times. You know, personally speaking, I have a weird habit of watching the same four documentaries over and over and over again. My, one of my particular favorites is Ken Burns' series on the Civil War. Now, just a precursor on that one, uh, his documentary on the Civil War is totally a, uh, we would say, an acquired taste. And every time I start it over, my wife hears the music and she rolls her eyes and simply walks out of the room. Okay. Uh, but every time I start that series, uh, I have to make a choice. I know much of the information, I know much of the stories and what's going to happen. I can even quote much of the lines, which is really ridiculous. But really, I must make a choice to see things with a fresh perspective. That's what I'm going to ask of you. That as we go through the Gospel of John, probably for the next year or two, yes, I did say that, for the next year or two, what I hope you see is see things with a fresh perspective and you invest in the gospel in order to really gain all the juicy truths of John. With all this said, as introduction to our introduction, uh, for our scripture reading today, we are reading a collection, a strategic collection of verses. And I purposefully arranged these verses to reflect the central idea for the entire book. And as I read, I'm going to give you the references and then I'm going to read the verse. I would encourage you to record the references themselves. But as I read, I want you to discover along with me the central idea for the entire Gospel of John. You will notice a theme. John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John chapter 3 verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John chapter 4, verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You, Pharisees, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life in his name. Perhaps you can tell this morning already that my goal today is clearly not to really entertain anybody. I usually don't read that long of a segment of Scripture at the very beginning. And today, really, my goal is to be very methodical, very very thought-provoking, and just really equipping you to understand the Gospel of John as we go through it. If you noticed um, in the church email, or even on the bulletin, that's also on our church website, today's sermon is titled, A Really Weird Word, it's a, it's a Latin word named prolegomena. That word prolegomena literally means to say before. It's really a fancy word meaning a thorough introduction. And that word encapsulates my goal for today. When you open the Bible... When you open the Bible to any passage, let's say Psalm 23 or John chapter 3 or Genesis chapter 12. When you open the Bible to any passage, what is the goal? The goal of when you open and when you read and when you study the Bible, the goal is not 
what does the Bible mean to me? Believe it or not, that's not the goal. Uh, to be honest, if that is the sole purpose and goal of studying the Scripture, then that is a good way to ride off into the sunset of subjectivism. Okay? We, when we read the Bible, the goal must be to understand the biblical author's original intent. Let me repeat that again. The goal when you study the Bible is to understand the biblical author's original intent. In other words, what did David mean in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd? What did Paul intend to the Philippian church when he says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, to be anxious for nothing? What did the writer of Hebrews mean in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6? You know, we like to... Rabbit trail, pause, hop on that one real quick. Okay, we like to read Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6 through the lens of Calvinism or whatever, Arminianism, but the writer of Hebrews had no idea who Calvin even was 1,600 years later. We cannot strictly interpret Hebrews chapter 6 through the lens of Calvinism, although it can, or Arminianism, although at times those lenses can be helpful. What did Paul mean in Romans chapter 8? That we are adopted as sons and children of God. Because the understanding that I have today of adoption is different than the adoption that Paul is discussing in Romans chapter 8. When you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, I'm saying that purposefully, when you study it, the goal is to understand the author's original intent. Now, once we establish this, when we study the Scripture, and when we study the Gospel of John for the next two years, that is our aim, in in perpetuity. Once we establish this aim, then the next question is the elephant in the room, right? How do we actually accomplish this? How do we determine the author's original intent? And I'm going to share with you 11 steps that we achieve this goal. Step number one, it should be on your notes sheet, is to understand your own, your own, interpretive biases. And I'll explain that here in just a few minutes. Step number two is to adhere to, maintain, acquire a orthodox, correct, proper theological framework. Step number three is to understand one's biblical framework. Where does the framework of John set in the whole Bible? And then step number four is to have or to attain biblical and historical background for the individual book. Step number five then becomes more passage-specific, specific-specific. Step number five is observation of a passage's distant and immediate context. Step number six is observation of the primary passage. Step number seven is interpretation, creating an exegetical proposition. Step number eight is interpretation, creating a homiletical proposition. And maybe if you and I would like to grab lunch, I will explain well that. Uh, entails. Step number nine is correlation. Where does it fit? Step number ten really is application. Breaking down all the observations and interpretation and putting it in, then only, only once you interpret it correctly, then do you carry it into modern audience. And then really step number eleven is putting it all together. If you take a look at your 11 steps, you will quickly notice, at least hopefully notice, that I attempt to, on Sunday mornings, practice steps 5 through 11. I usually observe the distant context, and then I make observations and interpret it and then apply it. That's really what I do on Sunday mornings. But I have never, at least to my knowledge, I've never discussed 
steps one through four with you. Um, and really, steps number one through four to studying the Bible is perhaps one of the most important uh, foundations of interpreting it. So let us talk about step number one. Understanding one's interpretive bias. What do I mean by that? It's quite simple. That when you, regardless if you think so or not, trust me, when you open the text, whether it's to Psalm 23 or to Revelation chapter 8 or to John chapter 1 or wherever you open the scripture, you bring, whether you realize it or not, you bring baggage to the table. Okay? You have particular biases that you, that you see the scripture through. For example, I'll give you my own personal uh, foibles. Uh, I tend, in my fallen nature, without the help of the flesh, without the help of the spirit, I usually interpret the Bible as a 21st century, selfish, middle class American. Right? This is my personal bias, and this leads me to think that the Bible was written to me. Wait, what, what did I just say? The Bible is not written to me. It's written for me. But John had little idea about America, about rockets, about Huntsville or computers when he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote to a particular audience about a particular issue for in a, in a particular setting for a particular purpose. What you and I don't realize is, is step number one is we try to study the Bible as if we're driving a car. Go with me on, the, on this illustration, okay? Imagine trying to drive a car with your luggage on your dashboard, okay? What's that going to do for your uh, trip the whole time, right? It's not going to be good. That's what we do in the scriptures. We take our baggage, we take our sinful human beings, we take our lens, our personal experiences, our personal tragedies, our uh, strengths and weaknesses, and we put on to the text instead of saying, okay, this is my baggage, and he set this aside, and I need to understand John's original intent. Step number two is having or understanding or acquiring a proper theological uh, framework. Now, what do I mean by that? Framework, a theological framework is basically core doctrines that you have that set up guardrails for interpretation. Let me give you an example, okay? John chap- or, excuse me, James chapter 2. I wholeheartedly believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You from home, please give me an amen. Thank you. Okay. So then when you come to James chapter 2, it seems that James, is, he says, are we not justified by works and not by faith alone? So if you did not have the theological guardrails that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and apart from works, if you don't have the theological guardrails, then you might think that James is talking about that we earn our salvation. But since you have that theological framework, then you know that it is an impossibility and you must understand what James actually intends otherwise. A, an example of a guardrail would be that I personally interpret the Bible as God's inerrant word. That God's word was written by God in perfect form and has been preserved by God through the eons of time for my instruction. Let me ask you, it influences me in that way. That doctrine influences me that I believe that this is God's word that is authoritative, that we can trust it. And then when I stand before you on Sunday mornings or whenever I talk about the scripture, I believe what I'm saying is absolutely 100% true. Example number two is another theological guardrail would be that I believe in a triune God. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, of one essence, yet three distinct persons. Okay. And think about that doctrine. It is so essential, so important to have those guardrails, especially when you go into Philippians chapter 2, or even in John chapter 1. Because that is my guardrail. I believe that the Word, which is Jesus, the Word is not just some God, he's not just sub-God, he's not an adopted God, but that Jesus is fully God from eternity past to eternity future without interruption. Now, on a more personal level, people would disagree with some of what I'm going to share next. Personally speaking, my theological framework also goes into dispensationalism. I am a proud dispensationalist. Now, you're asking me, what is that? take me out to lunch, I would be glad to explain all of the ramifications of it, but I'm going to give you three particular guardrails that that provides. Number one is that the church has not replaced Israel. That the covenants given to Israel, such as in Genesis chapter 12, are still Israel's and that the church has not replaced those. And this influences my interpretation In a lot of places in Romans, Genesis chapter 12, many of the Old Testament prophecies, and so forth. Number two, dispensationalism gives me a great, and I mean a great, framework to think through God's redemptive story. Dispensationalism basically breaks down the scripture into segments on which God kind of relates to mankind. Think about this. God related to mankind differently before the fall, after the fall, after the flood, after the... Torah is given after Jesus comes, and even in eternal life and eschatology. Dispensation gives me the ability to think through those different changes, or I wouldn't say changes, but different um, avenues, for lack of a better term. Okay. Number three is perhaps the most important thing about dispensationalism is that it provides me a more literal understanding of the scripture or hermeneutic, a more literal hermeneutic. Okay. Let me give you an example of that one. Okay, so in John chapter 2 is the wedding in Cana. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I have heard preachers who probably aren't dispensational, okay, preachers to say in John chapter 2 that it, the wedding in Cana represents us, the church, being the bride of Christ and how the headmaster is God the Father, being satisfied with the wine and the blood of the Son, which... Basically, what they're doing is they're taking that story and making a bunch of allegory. They're making an illustration for a theological doctrine. That makes, and I'm just saying, that makes for a wonderful sermon. It's just not right. I don't believe that John had any intention in John chapter 2 to discuss the theology of ecclesiology. Okay, I just don't think so. I heard another preacher talk about the wedding in Cana as an allegory of God's redemptive story that basically the wine represents the blood of Christ and Jesus turning water into wine represents the cleansing of my soul and the darkness and all that kind of stuff which makes for a great sermon wonderful sermon it's just not right because uh, as I understand, understand my aim for studying the scripture is to understand the author's original intent and what is John's intent John chapter 20 verse 31 that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing in him you may have life in his name step number three is understanding the biblical framework of a particular passage or a particular book 
What I mean by the biblical framework is really two things. Where does it fit? What is the location of the Gospel of John? And what is its genre? I'll explain both of those in just a second. you have any background in Christianity, you probably know that the Bible is broken down into two main sections. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. Unfortunately, we like to favor and not really talk about the Old Testament, even though the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. You cannot understand the importance of the New Testament without understanding the Old. And also, the Old Testament gives us the reason we need Jesus. If you just think about the Old Testament, think about Israel, think about Adam and Eve, think about Noah, every, think about Abraham, almost every Old Testament saint, you see their depravity, their sinfulness, their mistakes, And story after story confirms to us, not only are we depraved, but our desperate need of redemption in the gospel through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament just talks about our brokenness, but it also discusses God's sovereignty and his love and his pursuit of all of creation. And then the New Testament divides into three main sections. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have the book of Acts, and then you have the Epistles, which basically go from Romans to Revelation. So we come to the Gospel of John. It is one of the four Gospels, and it really centers on Jesus. I'm a shocker, right? It centers on Jesus, and it confirms John chapter 20, verse 31. Okay. Now, within this biblical framework, I told you, I'm not entertaining you. I'm told you, I'm trying to equip you a little bit and give you uh, some tools. Within this biblical framework, we also have to understand genre. There are seven, there can be more, you can argue about that later, it's fine. But there are seven types of genre in the Bible. Genre number one is the most prevalent, that is narrative. What is narrative genre? That is a story. What are some books that tell stories? Lots of them, right? Genesis, Exodus, right? What else? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Those are all narrative literature. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts. Those are all narrative literature. And when it says a story, we should interpret it as a literal story, not as an allegory, unless it tells us otherwise, like the prodigal son is a story, but it's actually meant to be taken figuratively. Just saying. Genre number two is legal, which you see that in the book of Leviticus. Genre number three is poetry. Number four is wisdom, seen in the Proverbs. Number five is prophetic, seen in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Number six is apocalyptic, seen in Revelation and parts of Daniel. What's interesting about Daniel is Daniel also has narrative in it. And then genre number seven is epistle. It's simply a letter, what I mean by that, which is basically Romans through the end of the New Testament. Um, But let's just address the elephant in the room. Why is understanding the genre of a particular passage important? Let's just role play for a second. If you, would you, asking you, would you interpret a Robert Frost poem in the same way you would interpret a biography? Of course not, right? Robert Frost, or any poet, is using figurative language to explain their feelings, right? You interpret it more as figurative language, as a figurative meaning. Whereas a biography of Abraham Lincoln, you take that to mean very literal, that the actual events of his life actually happened to him. All right, so there you go. So in order to interpret the Gospel of John correctly, we must understand our baggage 
We must have a proper theological framework. We must establish its biblical the theological framework must establish its biblical framework, where it fits and what is its genre. And then for the remaining part of our time together, I will talk about step number four. Step number four is understanding a passage's biblical background. What I mean by that simply is a few things. What is the Gospel of John's date? When was it written? What is the historical setting going on in the history in the nation of Israel and beyond? Uh, what is, who is his author, who is his audience, location of writing, themes, unique characteristics, outline, and John's purpose for writing. Date. These are all on your notes. If it's totally information overload, then you'll have to forgive me for today, and I will jump in next week into the passages itself. When was the Gospel of John written? Uh, believe it or not, that this is actually hotly debated. Some scholars on more on the liberal side say that the Gospel of John was written as late as 130 A.D. But this late date is simply impossible. The reason I say is because of P52. This is totally TMI. Okay. The reason the Gospel of John cannot be written at 130 A.D. is simply because of P52. Now, you're wondering what that is. It's not a jet fighter. Okay. Um, P52 is, a, is, a, is the earliest New Testament fragment that we have. It, it, and, and scholars almost unanimously agree that P52 was written in 125 A.D. What P52 actually contains is about a piece of paper about this big, and it contains about pieces of three or four different verses of John chapter 18. So if we have a fragment that was written in 125 A.D., then how could John have been written in 130 A.D.? Okay. Um, so the date is probably closer to 68 or 70 A.D., towards, maybe towards the end of John's life. It is hard to tell. But then you must ask the question, okay, if we understand the date of the Gospel of John, which is between 68 and 70 A.D., what's going on in the world? Quite simply. Uh, really what's going on is that Israel is under Roman rule. Israel has been under Roman rule for a little bit more than a century. And if you think about the context, why the date's important, if Israel has been under Roman rule for more than a century, then that makes sense why they are so eager to embrace Jesus as the king on Palm Sunday and why they are so quick to crucify him when, he does, when they do not get what they want. Also, in this time frame, there are four main cultural groups in the nation of Israel. The Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, and the Prophets. The Essenes were basically hermits, okay, monks. They lived in the cliffs, I believe, of Megiddo, and they're the ones that recorded the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay. You have the Zealots. The Zealots are a group of Jews that are revolutionaries. These are people that we would associate in American culture to Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, right? They are trying to revolt against the Roman rule to reestablish independence from Israel. There is a disciple of Jesus' name, Simon the Zealot. The Sadducees were the political politicians of the day working within the Roman system. And, of course, you know the Pharisees who were... Uh, the religious of the day. They incessantly memorized, made up rules in order to try to usher in the kingdom of heaven and to live a righteous life, but little did they know that you cannot earn God's favor by doing stuff. You earn God's favor by faith in Christ alone.
Who is this author? The author of the Gospel of John is, yeah, you probably guessed it is John. But technically, the Gospel of John is anonymous. John does not actually not say that he writes this. The closest that we have for internal evidence as far as his name goes to John chapter 21. But it is without question that John, Jesus' disciple, wrote the Gospel of John for many reasons, mainly because of the themes that are throughout the Gospel of John shared in his epistles, but also because of the external evidence of church, early church fathers that attest to him as the author. Moving on. Audience. The Gospel of John is written to Jews and to Gentiles and to all. It was written to Jews to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what? That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Meshua. He is the one that has come, the one that the Old Testament prophesies about, that has come to fulfill the promises to Israel. To the Gentiles, it is designed also to share with them the gospel and this truth, but also to strengthen and edify their faith. And to all, the Gospel of John reveals that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you shall have life. Location, where was the gospel written? The location of writing is probably in Ephesus, but we really just don't know. But if we are really, if we read the Gospel of John, the location of writing has little influence on its interpretation, unlike the book of Philippians. You think about the book of Philippians, the location that Paul writes that epistle is insanely important in Philippians. Paul is sitting imprisoned in Rome, and he is writing a letter to the church in Philippi, saying to them as he sits in Rome for them to rejoice. That plays a key role in its interpretation, but not the same in the Gospel of John, or at least not as much. What are some themes of the Gospel of John? There are four that I'm going to mention. The theme, therefore, there's a theme of light, of deity, of life, and of faith. The theme of light... John uses the theme of light, that the darkness, there, he talks about physical darkness, really, but the darkness he's using describes the darkness and the sinfulness and the brokenness and the depravity of man and the light and the purity of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Those two are working together to drive that home. The theme of deity, that over and over and over again, Jesus, John affirms that Jesus is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, he's not a teacher, but that he is fully divine. And we see this over and over and over and over again in John chapter 1, but also in the seven I am statements. And we'll talk about that as we go. The theme number three of life. Uh, there's a Greek word named, uh, that John uses of zoe. That is the Greek word for life, zoe. Zoe is used 137 times in the New Testament. That's a word study. 137 times, and 37 of them are used just in the Gospel of John. That in Jesus we have life, but I'm going to change your idea of what life means later on. It doesn't just mean life as we understand it. It means something else entirely. And then finally, theme number four is the theme of faith, that if we believe in Jesus, he gives us Eternity, eternal life. Unique characteristics, what makes the Gospel of John unique? Uh, the TMI, the book of the Gospel of Matthew, really discusses that Jesus is the Messianic King. It is particularly written to Jews. Mark 
proves that Jesus is a servant of God. Luke proves that Jesus is a son of man. And Luke was probably written to Gentiles. And John proves that Jesus is the son of God. He is fully divine. Pause for me with just a second. That's what I want to do. I'm getting a little sweaty because I'm getting excited up here over being a total Bible nerd. Okay, anyways. Yeah, I'm revealing it to you in all my glory. Okay, um, what I want to do is I want you to just pause. Before we go into the Gospel of John, I want you to see Jesus through the lens of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for the sake of time, and for ten hours of your life, I do not have time to talk about all of the aspects of Jesus. But what do those four Gospels convey that he is? A full picture of Jesus is that he was fully man he was fully god he is the perfect lamb of god he is the revealer of the father he is the messiah to israel he is the son of god he is the son of man he is a servant of god he is god's instrument of salvation and redemption he is the creator of all things he is our example of godliness and he is our payment for our sin How would you outline the Gospel of John? The outline of the Gospel of John can be as infinite as you want it to be and as simple as you need it to be. The most basic outline for the Gospel of John comes into two parts. You have John chapter 1 through 12 and John 13 through 21. John 1 through 12 is basically Jesus' public ministry and his revealing of his identity as the Son of God and as the Messiah. And then basically John chapter 13 verse 21 is affirming or confirming all of his identity. If you were to put a timeline on the Gospel of John, you would see this, that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 represent eternity past. That in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And then John chapter 1 verses 5 through the end of 12 is really three years. And then John 13 through 21 is three weeks. So you have eternity, three years is half of the book, and three weeks is the other half of the book. Kind of gives you an idea. And last but not least, and where we will spend our time remaining, is discussing the purpose for the Gospel of John. Why did John write this letter or Gospel? I've already said this verse many times, and I'm going to repeat it. You're going to get tired of it, and that's okay. John chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs that Jesus had performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book... But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What was John's original intent? Why did he arrange the events of the Gospel of John in a particular order? It is this, that you, 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 and his readers in the first century, that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Meshua, the Old Testament fulfiller of all things. He is the Meshua, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life. But as mentioned already, you and I have a very uh, simple, humanistic, pissy 
perspective on Zoe, of what life actually means. The life that Jesus provides. And then Monday night, I simply asked myself the question. I knew it was going to just unfold all this stuff that will help us interpret. And then I just asked myself the simple question. What is John all about? I mean, yeah, we see the purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. But let's just, let's just do this. Let's just go a little bit simpler. Let's do this. Yesu Zoe. That Jesus is life. If you could trace those three words, the Gospel of John centers on that one idea. And that's why I read John 1.4, John 3.16, John 3.36, John 4.14, John 5.24, and John 20, verse 31. I read all of those verses in the very beginning to affirm this one idea that Jesus is life. But our idea of life and what that means is so... Elementary. Let me just say it this way, that Jesus is more than the life as we understand it. I'm going to say something controversial, but I'll explain it afterwards. That Jesus did not come to give me immortality. What? We already had immortality. That when my body perishes... Whether I believe in Jesus, I live for immortality. I live eternally, but not in heaven, in a lake of fire called hell, right? But if I believe in his name, then I can have not only... I already had immortality, but I can now have life. But what is that term... I'm just going to put this idea in your head, that when you believe in Jesus, Jesus did not come to give me immortality. That's how I think about life. But that Jesus came to give me aliveness. The salvation that Jesus provides gives me aliveness that he causes me to be born again. My inner being is changed. My soul, through him and through faith and through what he has done, my soul no longer experiences eternal death, but eternal aliveness. Jesus is aliveness. Only He can restore my soul to the way I was designed. You know, think about the Garden of Eden. We were meant to know and to walk with God in intimacy with Him. And because of our sin and our mistake through Adam and Eve, we have ushered in brokenness and depravity into the race and into the world. But Jesus comes in to restore to us that picture that we can spend eternity in aliveness with God for forever. You know, I'm just going to be real for just a second. I think we have a terrible view of heaven. We think that heaven is just going to be this beautiful place that I'm going to fly around in the rings of Saturn. You know, and that it's going to be boring, right? What am I going to do for eternity? You know, we can't watch YouTube forever, okay? But that is so elementary, because as I see the scripture, that Jesus in heaven is aliveness, that we'll understand what it means to be truly restored and redeemed in the presence of God for eternity, that I will not be consumed for myself, but I will be consumed for the glory and the, great, for the, glory and the magnificence and the worship of God. It will not be boring. It will be alive and it will be awesome. 
This is the message of John, that Jesus makes me alive. He awakens my soul from the, from the dead. And he awakens my soul, on, in a sense, on this side of heaven, that I am a new creation, Second Corinthians chapter 5, but also that I may have eternal awakening and aliveness through him. Think about the best moments of your life. I would imagine the best moments of your life, the, the moments that you were the most satisfied, the ones that you go back to when you're in a dark place, that you just need a little bit of joy and a little bit of refreshing. It could be uh, the birth of a child or standing in the midst of the Grand Canyon or standing in the midst of Yosemite Valley seeing Yosemite Falls. Wherever you felt that feeling, that's a sense of aliveness. But the more and more I read the scripture is that being in the presence of God forever, that those human experience will pale in comparison to the glory and the grace and the magnificence of God. Now, for what time we have left, um, very quickly, I plan to do a little bit of application. And my application today is really not typical what I typically do is try to have some kind of action course or some kind of behavioral change in them, so I teach. But what I see in the scripture, I see Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen. If you're asking me sometimes, like, you know, why, Byron, do you, are you super doctrinal and theological, and then why sometimes are you super like user friendly and easy to digest point in the message? And really, the reason is, is because I try to take the tone of the scripture. The, sometimes the scripture doesn't have a clear application, but it's just trying to teach us and train us in righteousness. Let me give you an example: Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. All scripture is Theopneustos. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for what? For teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may thoroughly furnish for every good work. My goal today was not to correct or to reprove. It was to teach and to train you for righteousness. But I do have a favor to ask. I have two favors, actually. Favor number one to Christians. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Gospel of John can be like one of those old TV reruns. We know the stories, John 3.16, boring, which is totally not the case with that verse. We, John chapter 4, and the Samaritan woman went to well, right? We know all these stories, but I would encourage you to re-engage. And I'm going to challenge you for something. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to read the Gospel of John every week through. That's three chapters a day. Because I think only then will you ring out the truth of this book. And then favor number two is uh, the gospel does not give you immortality. It gives you the choice of experiencing that immortality either in life and aliveness in the presence of God or in eternal death. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. I would encourage you to go, if you're, if you're unsure of this Jesus thing, if you're unsure of what it means to be, believe and to experience Jesus Christ and to know him, I would encourage you to go up to a Christian and ask them, what does it mean to be born again? I, I'll just say it this way. I, I can't say this for everybody, and I can't, but I can just tell you my own personal story is that the moment that I believed in Jesus Christ, that at that moment I felt alive, even as a young kid. 
um, I felt that my thirsty soul for something more was quenched. I believe that the gospel gives us life. It allows us to be born again. It allows us to be a new creation. And we acquire this gospel. We acquire eternal aliveness by faith in Jesus. If you've never believed in Jesus, then I would encourage you to do so. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to just be a good person. You believe in Jesus for what he has done. For it is my hope from the outcome of this book, the Gospel of John, for non-believers to come to become alive. Perhaps there is no better book in the entire Bible for a non-believer to come and hear at a church but the Gospel of John. If you have a non-believing friend, I would encourage you to bring him to church because we're going to be here for like five more years, okay? I'll be like 40 by the time I get this thing done, okay? But... But I would encourage you to bring them to church, but also, if you have a non-believing friend, get them to open up the Gospel of John, because in it we see life, and we see the message of the Gospel, that Jesus has come, and He has died, and He offers to us salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. For it is my hope that non-believers to become alive, for it is my hope that Christians will be edified, built up in their faith, for it is my hope for Christians to know the meaning of aliveness in Jesus' name. And it is my hope that Christians who think that they are saved, but have never been born again, would realize the truth. And it is my hope for our time in the Gospel of John to proclaim Christ accurately, fully, and boldly, so that all can find life through faith in his name. Amen. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I just thank you that we can just introduce uh, this wonderful book. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we would not see it as stale or as bread that we left out overnight, but Lord, that we would see the message of the sinner, that we would see the life that you give through your name and through what you have done and through salvation and through the gospel. Um, Lord, I just pray that we would find that in you, that we would stop looking to the world to satisfy our inner beings and our inner needs, and that we would start looking to the Savior of the world, to the creator of all things, to satisfy the thirst of our soul. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for Calvary. Oh, what a great church I pastor. And they have been so faithful from even such a distance to continue to give and to pray and to even meet via the Internet um, together and to encourage one another. I pray that you would just protect them, be safe, grant the leadership here uh, continued wisdom on the future and on decisions that must be made. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.